Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. Welcome to Connections. I'm Colleen Hood with Mike Tom. Today's guest is a serial question asker and ideas explorer. We're joined by Jared Bias. He's an author, speaker, and co-host of a popular podcast called The Bible for Normal People. He says his passion is to explore new ways of being Christian and to help people translate all of life's big questions into a life full of meaning and connections. Today on Connections, Jared will share with us where this passion for questions came from. He'll also share with us the inspiration behind his new book, Love Matters More. We're joined today by Jared Bias. He is an author, speaker, and co-host of the popular podcast called The Bible for Normal People. Great podcast, The Bible for Normal People, Jared, that you host. Uh, You're also a biblical scholar, though. I'm just kind of wondering how you got into uh, the Bible and theology. What drew you to that and studying it intently? I grew up. Uh, I grew up Christian. I grew up in uh, in the South in Texas, and so the Bible has always been very much a part not only of my family's life but also of our culture. And when I was a teenager, while some people were thinking about becoming teachers and doctors, I wanted to get a PhD in what's called presuppositional apologetics, which is about. <laughs> arguing and defending Christianity as the only right way to have a religion. What drew you to that? Just how like you grew up in the church and stuff. You were just that passionate about your faith as a young person. Yeah, I was a Christian and uh, you know, everyone around me said I was really good at arguing. So it seemed like a natural fit. (laughs) Uh, How'd that work out for you then? Well, I went to, I went to seminary and when I got there, what I recognized was a lot of the faculty members who were in this department of apologetics were just fr- frankly not very um, emotionally aware, loving human beings. They it was it was really people who were kind of angry and argued really well, and were about p- putting people down and putting people in their place. And it it really didn't sit well with me. It didn't it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like the kind of Christianity I wanted to be a part of, or the kind of Christian I wanted to be. And so in that short amount of time, I, I got pretty disillusioned with that and, and turned to biblical studies, which it was not so much about what they were teaching. It was about them as human beings. And I, I just connected with them in a lot better. They had a grand vision for how to live out their faith in a way that resonated with me. And that's all it took. Another thing I really like about you and in your bio is that you're a serial question asker and an ideas explorer. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I actually went to uh, my undergrads in uh, in philosophy, and that's what I loved about it. It was all about the questions, and sometimes the questions got us into trouble, which I think I was a little naive at the time to think that that could happen. But even just asking the questions sometimes got me into trouble. So I love being in philosophy and in spaces where I can ask questions and not uh, get into trouble for them. And do you worry so much about the answers then, or you're you're kind of okay with asking more questions and just sitting in I don't know, kind of the unknown of it all, or something like that? Yeah, I think there's a balance there because I I do run into people who it's you know it is just about the questions and they don't they don't land on anything. And so I'm I'm always wrestling that balance between how can we have uncertainty and conviction. And I think that's a real challenge. Is sometimes we we act, you know, we're passionate about, we have conviction, we live our lives based on the things we feel certain about. But how do we uh maybe open that up some so that we can hold our beliefs with an open hand? and yet still act with conviction. And that, that's a pretty challenging thing I found. I kind of like that because when you like when you read the stories about Jesus in the New Testament and stuff, I mean, there's a guy that has all the answers 
But usually when asked a question, what does he do? He doesn't give an answer. He asks a question in return instead. Yeah, that was funny. When I was researching the book, uh, you know, looking at all the times that Jesus asks questions and has asked questions and how many times Jesus answers them directly. And I, I have it in the book. It's something like, you know, over 150 times uh, he's asked a question and only three times does he answer it directly. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you mentioned too, um, you know, the, in the, that first program of apologetics and stuff, kind of the angry professors and stuff. And, and you mentioned that word love. You've really started to focus on love, it feels like, in a lot of your work when it comes to living a Christian life. Why? That, because of that, that, that example I gave was a way to project the uh, other people and put them in a bad light. But the reality was I spent my whole life arguing and thinking that the the best way to be a Christian was to convince people of the right answers. And as a pastor, that started to create a lot of pain for people because, you know, they were, they were older people in the congregation. I sort of dedicate my book unofficially to some old women in the back of the congregation where I was a pastor who I kept trying to convince them that getting the right answers about God was sort of the heart of Christianity. That's what it's all about is making sure we get our facts right. And uh, they would, you know, kind of wave me off and say, that's, I don't, that's my, my, my mind doesn't work that way. I don't think like that. That's kind of over my head. And yet looking back, they were the most gracious, most compassionate, most like Jesus people in my congregation. And so just my experiences of, of hurting people with my need to be right about God sort of led me down this path to say, maybe love matters more. Now, speaking of Love Matters More, you wrote a book about that. Tell us about that book. Yeah, it's called Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. It's really just an outworking of the story I just shared and how, uh, how when I look at the Bible, and I actually started to take that seriously from the lens of if I have to choose, if I have to talk about um, which is more important in the biblical narrative, making sure we get our facts right about God or loving people well, it's, it's overwhelmingly about loving people well. And I use the, the verse in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, as sort of this lightning rod to, to understand what the Bible has to say about truth and love. I feel like if you say to certain Christians, love matters more, they are going to get defensive right away and worry about what you're going to say next. Have you found that to be true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why, you know, there's a lot of reasons I named it Love Matters More, but one was, so I could say, I didn't say love was the only thing that mattered, but love does matter more. And I think that's what people want to say is we try to think in these black and white terms that if you say that love matters more, that you don't care about truth. And that's not at all what I'm saying. Uh, I'm just saying that we have to make sure we put the proper end at the place that it belongs. If we're shooting for love, oftentimes truth has to come along, you know, just like if I'm trying to take care of my kids, I need to have some facts about how to take care of them well so that I'm not giving them the wrong medicine. I'm not, you know, if they have a, uh, an illness, I know I can go to the doctors and they're going to have the facts right. Like that's part of loving well. It, but if I try to put truth as the most important thing, often love does not come along. Now, this book came out back in September of last year. What has the response been like from those who have had the opportunity to read it? It's been it's been good. I, I think a lot of people had the experience that I've had with with readers has been, you know what? Yeah, I did get this uh, experience when I was younger of people using speaking the truth in love as a way 
to judge me and shame me and not feel at all bad about it, thinking that they truly were loving rather than listening and understanding and being present to me. Um, and so that's, it, which is great because that's what I was hoping for. That's really interesting. Yeah. Speaking the truth in love, right? Often we'll say that, well, I'm just speaking the truth in love, brother, but really you're not. <laughs> you're, <trying laughs> right, to... you're telling us your opinion in fear. Oftentimes. Yeah. That's really interesting. You mentioned counting how many times Jesus was asked a question and how many times he answered them in the New Testament in your book. Did you, did you count how many times he spoke on love? I didn't count that, but it, it was quite a bit. And in really, the most important part of that not, isn't how, how many times, but the times that Jesus does speak about love. It's pretty emphatic. And, and we have this, I mentioned there's only three times that Jesus answers a question directly. One of those is when someone comes up and tries to trap Jesus with the question of which is the greatest commandments, like asking in front of your kids, which one of these is your favorite? And Jesus responds pretty clearly and directly. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, which is a way of summarizing the entire Bible, all of the scriptures uh, hang on these two. They depend on these two. So that becomes a central part of the book and a, and a central part of, of my outlook and my theology and how I live my life is that, you know, G, from straight from Jesus's mouth, love matters more and actually summarizes all of the other laws under that. Do you think the church in the West, um, have we failed at loving others well overall, or is it not fair to generalize like that? But yeah, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, where Christianity is right now, I guess. Yeah, I think it is difficult to generalize, so I wouldn't want to make a blanket statement, but I would say in the tradition I grew up in, in the churches that I've been a part of, the leadership has tended to value and promote, and in, and and when I mean promote, I mean literally the people who know the right answers and who can speak well about the Bible and are the smartest, they tend to be put in positions of leadership. So I think there's a systemic privileging of knowing the right answers over loving people. We see it in our faith statements, our, our statements of faith, our membership processes. As long as we can spout the right answers, we get in and we get elevated. Uh, we don't take a hard look at how, how are people loving and, and what does that mean? And, and how do we have that conversation? Speaking of growing up, what was that like for you in your faith journey and, and just your life back before taking this road? Um, yeah, like I said, I, I always took my faith pretty seriously and grew up a Southern Baptist. In, uh, my, my dad would have been Southern Baptist and, and my mom was charismatic. So we had this interesting uh, difference already early on uh, between these two denominations. And then when I was in high school, I went to a Presbyterian church by myself because I gravitated more toward the intellectual side of, of faith. And uh, there was a lot more you know, of the, the intellectual conversations going on at the, at the Presbyterian church down the road. So I, I went there. Um, so it's a bit of a spiritual mutt in that sense. I had a lot of <laughs> uh, different experiences, which I, I really appreciated because I could see all these different angles and all the different people who were trying to express their faith in, in different ways. And, and I didn't see anything wrong with any of those expressions at the time, just people who were built differently, different personalities, different expressions. So I, I appreciated that. Um, yeah, I just think <clears throat> an intellectual liturgical Baptocostal kid. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. What? So how do we shift things then? Like, it's really interesting. You know, you said like we put people in positions of leadership so long as they can spout the right answers. It's kind of 
interesting though that we have so many different right answers in Christianity, right? Between like Presbyterians and Baptists and Pentecostals, the right answer can be different. How do we shift from needing to be right to just worrying about loving more, do you think? I mean, there's a, there's this, I think the structural side of that, which is having leadership look at, again, those things like membership processes and how, how do we become members? How do we become leaders? And is love the guiding rubric or is it getting the facts right. And then I think there's the personal side of that, which is how we interact with the people who are different than us. We live in a world that's so polarizing with social media and uh, politics and and all of these things that are uh, trying to get us to fit into a black and white. And what matters is that you're in my camp. And if you're not in my camp on this thing, then I don't have to be nice to you. And, And we have to really be careful that we don't start dehumanizing other people because they have different opinions about religion and politics. So how do we, you know, how do we, in my mind, I think one of the first steps is how do we unpack what's going on inside of us? Because a lot of times at the heart of those divisions and those strong opinions are some fears and some insecurities and some things that we maybe need to work through on a personal level. Yeah, I was thinking fear is the biggest one. Like if I'm wrong on this, (laughs) then (laughs) I'm in big trouble too. So, so doc, like, I think you've said this already in ways, but I just want to ask you straight up. Does doctrine have a place in Christianity for you? Yes. Again, it it does. But to what end? It it, it always, for me, for me, it's never, it's never an end in itself. Um, And I think to, you know, James in that, that passage where uh, James says, you know, some people believe or the the, the demons believe in God. So what? So, so doctrine, knowing the facts about God isn't enough. Uh, so is, is there doctrine is important insofar as it motivates us toward a life of love? Yes. But when we start to use it uh, to exclude and to determine who's in and who's out, I think it has less value. Yeah, that's a great point. Even the, what does it say? Even the demons believe Jesus is Lord and shudder or something like that. So right. they have good doctrine, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, them. the devil uses scripture in Luke and, you know, there's different passages where it seems that pe- people knowing about God doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, and if God is, is real and if all these things are true, then you would find that out it, it, through other means of inquiry. But the, the Christian faith seems to be about obedience to Jesus uh, and, and following in that example. And Jesus's explicit words were that love uh, is the summation of all the laws. What's been, I don't know, like your the funnest or the most freeing discovery for yourself along this journey then uh, the past few years in your life? I, I think it's letting go of the, the rules. You know, for me, love is was scary. Uh, at first, the idea, because it's not black and white, it's messy. Um, but once I can get beyond that fear, where not everything in my life has to fit into a certain box, and it doesn't have to be mathematical and robotic, then there can be a sense of freedom that comes from um, trying to figure out and navigate this life of, of love. Is a, it's an expansive and freeing experience. It's not a constrictive experience of trying to check all the boxes. Now, not only are you the author of Love Matters More, you're also a popular podcast host of a show called The Bible for Normal People. Tell us a little bit about that and why you chose that name for your show. 
Well, we, I mean, I can, I can tell you from my perspective, I have a co-host Pete Enns as well. And, but from my perspective, you know, what motivated me was growing up in a small town and having a several Christian bookstores, but they all held the same kind of books. There wasn't any uh, books that wouldn't have, uh, would have said something radically different than the, the next book on the shelf. It was very uh, conservative theology. That's how it worked. And then I, I go to seminary and this whole entire world opened up for me in terms of how scholars think of the Bible, how they interpret the Bible, what the tools are that they're using to read the Bible. And I thought, why is this locked up in the academy? Why is this not accessible to everyday people? That because for me, it was so life-giving and it was so exciting and it, it was so fresh and it opened the Bible up in all these different ways for me. And so that became kind of our mission is to bring the best in biblical scholarship to everyday people who don't have PhDs or MDivs and can still get a lot out of these insights. You want to talk about books saying radical things to certain Christians. Pete Enns is a good place to start, I guess, right? So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I had the misfortune of having him as a professor. Early on, so. <laughs> One of the, you know, that's great, too. Like, um, I've read a lot of Pete's books. And even if I don't agree with him on certain things, he always makes you think and it does come like he says it in such clear ways, right? And really, yeah, he just really gets the wheels turning in your head. Yeah. And I think that's, for us, that's the best kind of environment is we're trying to create a space because for a lot of our listeners, we've heard this hundreds, if not thousands of times that uh, the, one of the things that people appreciate about the podcast is that we just allow space for questions. We're not even saying we're right all the time. We're not saying our guests are mm -hmm. right all the time. We're just providing a space where you're not going to be shamed and judged for even asking the questions. And, you know, as a pastor, I had people, I had a class I taught called four skeptics only. And I had people who came into that class. It was for atheists, um, basically, who you know had spouses that were Christians and coming to the church, but they didn't believe huh. and didn't want to sit in the service. And we would have people in there. And at the beginning, when we always introduce ourselves, that would say, yeah, I, I thought I was a Christian, but my family tells me I'm not. And it turns out it's like <laughs> because they asked questions, all of a sudden their yeah. parents were like, Ugh, we don't know how to handle you. Go to this class so that the pastors can fix you, which was not the point of the class at all. Um, but so providing that environment for questions, I think is so key. Yeah. When I was a youth pastor, that was my biggest thing, uh, like forcing the teens to just ask questions and then not answering them for them. Because, well, myself and my own story growing up in the church and being told what to think and believe all the time. Then when I discovered maybe some of those things weren't necessarily true, it all crumbled apart for me, right? And my faith collapsed. So if you let people ask questions about their faith, the only thing that's going to happen is they're going to have a way stronger faith, whatever they land on. Well, yeah, it's when you're, when you're given the answers, you're actually borrowing the faith of someone else. You're either borrowing yeah. the faith of the tradition or the authority figure. But when we can ask questions, then, then our faith can hook into us and it becomes our own. Sounds really freeing too. It's kind of funny because I was just thinking too, when I do agree with Pete ends on something that he writes, then my first thought is, can I let anybody know I believe this or they're all going to think that, I'm, you know, I'm not this, this kind of Christian anymore, right? Well, and that goes back to that polarizing sense that it's, it's sort of all or nothing. It's not, yeah. hey, there's, there's something we can glean and learn and gain wisdom from so many people who are different from us. And we may disagree with 80% of what they say and do and believe and behave, but that 20% can be a real gem for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, I got to ask about your kids' names. Tell us your kids' names, would you? 
Yeah, so our oldest is Augustine, and our uh, second son is Tove, and then our daughter is Alethea, and our last son, our fourth child, is Exodus. I love that. Augustine, a lot of people are going to know, one of the early church fathers. Tove, they're also going to know, because we just interviewed Scott McKnight about his new book, A Church Called Tove, so they know the word good, and we know Exodus. I don't know Alethea, though. What's that? Yeah, and you know, our kids' names... um, really track with our spiritual journey hmm. in, in, you know, Augustine, that Presbyterian got it all. We know all the answers and Augustine gave us a lot of those answers, St. Augustine. Um, so we named Augustine after that. And then Tove starting to maybe think about creation as good and, and not, you know, that, that old reformed uh, framework that we had where everything is wretched and bad. Uh, and then Aletheia is a, a combination of two Greek words in John eight thirty two. John, uh, Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And the Greek word for truth is aletheia. And the Greek word for freedom there, free, is eleutheria. So we put those together and created cool. uh, aletheia, a little portmanteau. Um, so, and then, and then Exodus comes along, you know, so we start pursuing truth regardless and starting thinking about freedom more um, and how those are not opposed, truth and freedom, but freedom sets us free. Um, and truth is always in service of that. And then Exodus really blew the doors off, spiritually speaking, for us. Um, we just sort of entered in a time of wilderness of saying, well, we don't, we don't, we don't know what we believe anymore. We, we got to, like I said earlier, we had to make our faith our own. We had to stop borrowing it from other people. And that can feel for a lot of people like a wilderness journey. Um, and so Exodus came along at that time and it seemed like a perfect fit. Tell us again about your website really quick and where we can catch the podcast and get the books. Yeah, so for me personally, you can just go to jaredbias.com. Uh, for all things Bible for Normal People, you can just go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com. We have courses. Um, the, you can get access to the podcast. Um, we have a lot of blogs. We just have a lot of content up there. Thank you again. Thanks, Jared. Real pleasure talking with you. And thank you so much for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.